This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, listeners, to the Humane Podcast. Today, our guest speaker is Nikita Shamgunov, who is the founder and co-CEO of MemSQL. He is working to transform data management throughout the entire world, and he's joining us today from Silicon Valley. Nikita, thanks for joining us on the show. Happy to be here. I'm really excited to be having this conversation as a practicing data scientist. I work with a lot of clients and I see so much data in the world, just like yourself. And while 2020 has been such an interesting year all around, uh, many call it the unprecedented year. Look, now we are exploring to reimagine our economy, to reopen our world. And this is seeing where COVID and coronavirus has been and to where we're going, how we can stop and slow this spread, and how we can transform the world. So what are some of the things you've been seeing as a leader in Silicon Valley? Well, this is a great question. I think at the end of the day, we, as we go through, like you said, unprecedented times, people who have the levers of power are rolling out initiatives, are rolling out shutdowns and thinking about this big disruptive changes. Things like opening the economy, closing the economy, opening borders, closing borders, uh, quarantines. And in order to do that well, you need to have a very, very strong decision support. And one of the things that emerged through those times is this various ways of controlling the spread by having a very clear understanding what's happening in the world, what's happening in the region, for example, what's happening in New York. When you tune in to Andrew Cuomo's updates, you will see that he always starts his update with a lot of statistics, demonstrating and showing how those statistics are influencing the decisions of um, you know, what we're going to go about next. Now, at the same time, we're only scratching the surface here. And under the covers, there is another thing that got a lot of popularity, which is called contact tracing or social tracing. And in that category, 
the issue is, you know, how can we use data and how can we use location-based data because everybody is now carrying a smartphone to really identify and control the epidemic. And NanSQL works with a handful of customers to enable that social uh, tracing scenarios. Now, in order to do that right, it's like, what are the key problems that we need to solve? And not just as a technology, right? As, as individuals, like I said, people with the levers of power, what do they care about? The one thing is um, how we can estimate the migration patterns that people are having by you know, commuting to work or by going from state to state or taking um, airplane flights. How do we can anticipate where the next outbreak is going to be the most pronounced? And this was the information that was vital to us a while back when we were thinking about the ICU capacity. The other one is, okay, well, let's say we got that under control. We're not limited anymore by masks. So we're not limited anymore by, by ICUs. Now, the question is, can we thumbtack that pandemic? Can we really push the numbers down and keep them low? And that requires very good social tracing and contact tracing techniques. So for example, if you know that a particular individual is infected, and of course you've obtained that information by this individual reporting to the officials or checking into a hospital, now that that individual has been contagious for two weeks. So can we go back and based on the data, understand who are all the individuals that that infected person has contacted and can we go and find out and trace it back and potentially test those people and really isolate and quarantine people who may have been impacted. So now let's close our eyes for a second and do a little bit of math. There are 300 million people in the United States, slightly north of that. Well, let's just say 200 million are having cell phones and, and moving around. And let's say we collect a data point for every second of person's location, and we store this information somewhere. So first of all, let's ask ourselves, is that a lot of data? Well, actually, that is a humongous amount of data. It's 200 million data points being collected from everybody every second. And in order to first collect and store all that data and, and to start running various algorithms, including contact tracing on top of this data, you need two things. You need access to the data, and then you need technology. So then you, you start thinking, well, who has that data? And the obvious answer is, is whoever is giving you the cell phones. It's basically the Google and Apple. And by the way, they're coming up with a great partnership to enable social tracing. And I think that's, that's a very, very good thing for the humanity, for the control of the pandemic. And the other party that has the data is obviously is telecommunication operators. The interesting thing is that Google both has the information about their location for at least half of the population that has the Androids and the technology. The telecommunication operators do have the data, but not necessarily the technology. And that's where MemSQL is partnering with some of the key telecommunication providers here in the United States and overseas to enable contact tracing and social tracing by combining the data sets that uh, the telecommunication providers have by the nature of their business and the MemSQL technology to store, process, and give the full 360 information 
for social tracing, for migration patterns, and for various decision supports that eventually flows back into the politicians, the decision makers to control the spread of the pandemic. I think everything that you've just shared, Nikita, is spot on. It's so fascinating and relevant. I'm joining everyone from New York City as we're continuing to reimagine and reopen the economy in Silicon Alley. We've seen a lot of change to the city. Not only has the MTA shut the subways at night so that they can clean and disinfect, we've seen nurses that have flown into New York City to help with coronavirus, to help ensure we can reduce the numbers or flatten the curve or prevent a second wave, to help everyone get better. And I think we've seen some of these early contact tracing apps, like the ones out of MIT and the ones in Singapore that have been helping. But of course, not everything's been anonymous. We've had some scenarios where different on-demand drivers or delivery people may have, you know, had access to this personally identifiable information. But, you know, I think we're making progress there to de-anonymize data. It sounds like the efforts you're doing at MemSQL, I applaud them that you're helping bridge the gap here with uh, humans and data. And I think it's going to be essential that we have these partnerships with global telecommunication companies like what you've mentioned. You know, I've traveled a lot and also worked with telecoms. In October 2019, I was in South Korea meeting with some of these leading telecoms from Southeast Asia, and we were talking about digital transformation. Digital transformation means so much to the world today. What you're thinking about like education, like we offer uh, at Galvanize, or it's data management, like you're doing in MemSQL globally, there's so many companies. I mean, I can speak to our clients, like the work we do with T-Mobile and STC. I mean, there's so much going on in the data space. And I think contact tracing, like you've mentioned, Akita, is just going to start taking off and becoming bigger and more important in the economy. Where do you see this contact tracing moving? And is it something that's going to be here to stay? Well, I think so. I think so. And and the reason to that, there's just so many applications to contact tracing. And COVID certainly highlights at least one use case there is uh, to controlling the spread of the pandemic. The effectiveness of that is absolutely unparalleled, right? If you look at how certain countries control the spread, you can see that those who've implemented those techniques earlier are certainly benefiting from the fact that you know they, there's just fewer deaths and fewer cases in those countries. To give you an example, that Israel implemented contact tracing very, very early on. They were ready to address those issues as the virus hit the country. And uh, the numbers are on the board. The numbers are on the board. You can see how much fewer cases at the end of the day they, they had. And that's because they were aggressive with the measures early on, and that's because they had very strong technology support with their decision-making process. Now, where contact tracing is is heading outside of COVID, because at the end of the day, COVID is gonna blow over. It's a new world we're living in now, the post-COVID world, but if you look at the longer span of time, this will go away and something else will come in. The one thing is, first of all, this is not gonna be the last pandemic, Right. We, uh, if you look back 100 years, I think we had three or four SARS. And, and then uh, there was something in the 60s and before that, the Spanish flu. So we're going to see more of that. And the well-developed techniques, technologies that you can just turn on with a flip of the switch will be available and ready for us moving forward. So this is great. 
Beyond that, there's certainly plenty of applications for contact tracing. You know, various security applications, uh, you know, terrorists, criminal activities, all of those things. And certainly it edges at the border of, you know, what's that place where we're giving the authorities too much power that could be the invasion into privacy. And that's where I think legislation and regulations are going to come in to really define, you know, what's okay and what's not. When we work with the telecom providers, they are absolutely obsessed with the access to what it's called the the caller ID, right? The user ID. Like who is that actual user for a given data point? You know, if you know that, hey, this is the user with that user ID at this point in time, at this location, even that information is contains a lot of power, right? And the access to this information in this country is regulated. And we, MemSQL, certainly don't have access to that, right? We provide technology and there's a lot of barriers even inside the telecommunication providers that control access to the uh, subscriber ID. And I think that's the right approach and that's the right way to look at it. And that's why if you want to give access to third parties for this kind of data, you know, subscriber IDs absolutely have to be anonymized. We have to be extremely careful how we do it. And the reason to that is with modern algorithms, sometimes you can infer that information by running smart algorithms and and correlating pieces of data with each other. And uh, you oftentimes can reveal that information or infer that information. And the crazy thing is that as algorithms getting better and more refined, you know, today you might not know that you're sharing certain insights, but you are sharing the data. And then tomorrow you invent a new algorithm and you're starting to extract those insights out of that data. That's why I think it creates an interesting challenge for the regulators of uh, how to control and access that data. Yeah, and I, I completely believe that regulation is at the heart of this matter. I mean, Nikita, we're talking about humans and machines working together. We've seen in New York State how uh, Governor Cuomo's hired over 1,700 contact tracers to help uh, have the humans help make sure we bridge the gap, we make sure data is anonymous, we make sure that people feel comfortable and all this is tracked. But it's not going to stop with COVID-19. As you said, maybe there will be a COVID-20, a COVID-21, but we want to prevent examples like what we've seen the downfall of, you know, privacy concerns with like the Clearview AIs or the banjos of the world where a lot of, you know, issues happened. But I can see contact tracing going so much further. I mean, of course, it's been on many people's hearts and minds uh, in the last few weeks with George Floyd from Minneapolis, you know, when he was taken down from police and, you know, everyone's on different lines here. But I can only imagine if contact tracing was available on on his device and the device of those who recorded and the device of these police officers, it'd be very clear. We would know for certain what happened. There would be no questions. So, you know, my question to you then is, so why is it important for people to download contact tracing apps on their phones? Well, I, I think it's a part of social responsibility. In my preferred and ideal world, those contact tracing apps are just pushed on you by by the device providers, by Apple and Google. And of course, it's a consent, right? So you can reject it or you can accept it. And that would be my preference. 
But I think it goes into the same category as wearing a mask, right? Downloading a contact tracing app is a very straightforward thing for you to do. So you basically do it and forget about it. And what you do through that action, you are saving lives because you will get a notification on your phone that's, um, hey, why don't you show up and, and take a test? Looks like you had been in the proximity of someone who had uh, COVID-19 and you may be safe because you are in the category healthy individual and relatively young, but you, by doing that, you potentially is uh, limiting the spread of the virus. So that's why I think you should go and download the app. Yeah, I think it's, it's so important, especially as we start to reopen the economy. I mean, we've seen several countries, as you've mentioned, that are reopening and then reclosing. And it's very challenging because there's so much around COVID or coronavirus that we don't know yet. But we do know some things have been promising. Uh, recently, the Center for Disease Control, CDC, came out saying that they've dismissed their claims that it's not as contagious on surfaces as they once thought, which is very promising, I think, to help us reopen the economy. And I think as we continue to reopen and reimagine, what does work look like? What does education look like? What does society look like? I mean, in your predictions a little bit, uh, where where do you see us moving onward and upward? As as our governor in New York, Andrew Cuomo says, can we reach back to our pre-COVID levels of work? Well, I think so. Well, for once, we, in the transition state, right, you know, we live in the post-COVID world and We'll be working from home quite a bit, right? We record in this interview. I'm recording this interview from my bedroom. As we do that, we're spending a lot of social capital that we've built working together in the same office. And that's why I actually, you know, I'm a big believer in that social capital. And I'm looking forward to the time where we can go and come back and start working out of the same office again. But to answer your question, you know, where I see that's going. I think we're just going to get so good at understanding and controlling this pandemic through a combination of um, rules and guidelines, such as, you know, six feet apart, wearing a mask, you know, installing a, a contact tracing app on your phone, something that is, you know, simple to follow and uh, something that society accepts. And then we're going to get very sophisticated in tools that gives us very good insight about what to do and what not to do and if something is working or something is not working. And then hopefully the whole humanity is working on solving that crisis. So hopefully we'll get a vaccine because in parallel, lots and lots of labs are working for a vaccine for COVID-19 and, and, uh, you know, one day it's there and uh, we'll forget it like a, a bad dream. Yeah, and I think as we move into, again, new economy, reopening and seeing where we're at, I'd like us to shift the conversation to anonymous data. Pre-COVID, we've shared a little bit on the show that we've all known about the data leaks, the data breaks, the data sales on the dark web. And, you know, pre-COVID, I've tried some of these contact tracing apps, and I think they're very promising. I've used the one from Singapore, the one from MIT. It's very interesting software. I mean, it makes me think of some of the favorite apps that I use today, like Yelp and Facebook and Find My Phone, right? All these are apps that we use anyway that we take for granted on Apple and Google, but the contact tracing apps are really much of the same. They're just helping increase privacy, increase security. I think it's going to be good 
for everyone, but you know, there's still people questioning about the anonymous data. Like, is it really safe? Is it secure? What's your take on that? This is a great question. And by the way, I'm with you on Find My Phone. I've used it a million times. <laughs> so my take is that there is um, public data and there's data that is guarded by whoever owns that data. And for public data, we need to we need to have open techniques for securing and anonymizing that data. So you either lock the data down and then like, let's say Google owns that data or Apple owns that data and doesn't give it access to anyone. And they are responsible for the security and um, safety really of that data that the bad guys won't go and, and break into it. And so in that situation, we are relying on the capability of a large tech giant. You know, we've had lots of breaks. We have lots of leaks. Equifax, you know, had a leak a few years ago. In this world, the bigger the giant is, the more secure is the data in a way. And the only reason to that is that they they have access to vast resources, vast teams of uh, security professionals, and, you know, decades of experience to secure such data sets. You know, so for example, if you talk about Microsoft, you know, Microsoft has a history of hackers trying to break into Windows. And in order to respond to that, Microsoft built massive security teams with world-class researchers. And it's just like a very strong security muscle there. Same goes for Apple as a tech giant. Same goes for Google as a tech giant. When a data set becomes public, then it needs to be as open as possible. Because in this situation, the security and the anonymization of this thing, the strength of it is going to get better if it's open to the public and anybody can go and try to hack it. So, and the techniques of securing and anonymizing are published and they're published ahead of time, is, is peer reviewed by the industry, peer reviewed by the academia. So that's another way to secure something. It's actually make it extremely, extremely public and publish the ways, how are you securing this data that's all in the open? In a way, Bitcoin is secure and all the Bitcoin code that runs in the world is open source. So it's out there for everybody to see and read. But yet, once you apply it, then it makes something secure, it makes something anonymized, and it makes something to run well. You know, as you've described with some of these use cases right now, like Microsoft with their data teams, it just brings back a memory for me in New York City. When I was just getting started and moved from Florida to New York, I joined the Capture the Flag event in New York City. And this was with Red Hat. It was on tunneling data. And I just went up into the skyscraper and out of nowhere, I felt like I was in an eSport, like League of Legends live and the cameras were on us and we were just hacking and penetration testing. It's it's incredible to see security has become a huge component of our industries. It's almost that hidden area that no one sees. And uh, earlier this year, I called that the top job for 2020 is cybersecurity analyst. I think there's such a need for these roles for companies to protect data and protect systems. I think, Nikita, as you've shared, we are generating so much more data today than ever before. I mean, think just in the United States, 200 million plus devices, 300 million plus people, that's generating data every second. We're all going to be getting new phones soon, right? The Samsung Galaxy S20 Ultras or the iPhone 12s that are going to be generating even more data. And 
I think one of the biggest complexities is as an industry, we need to manage data management, but that is a struggle. I know that's a lot of the work that you're doing at MemSQL, so I'd love for our audience to gain a better appreciation of how MemSQL works today. Yeah, it's a great question. So when you think about data management, a typical solution includes the ability to capture, store, and process data. And in the world of lots and lots of data, like large data volumes, you can't store all the data on your device or you can't store the data on one computer. So you start thinking about what is called cluster systems. And cluster is kind of an old world, the new world of describing those systems as cloud. The right place to store and process large volumes of data are in the cloud. And the way it works under the hood, right? Clouds really give you access to a bunch of Lego bricks. And those Lego bricks could be a server that is in the cloud, or a data brick could be a service offered by a cloud provider, such as, uh, for example, for Amazon, that would be S3 or an object store. Those are what is called elastic. So S3 has, for all intents and purposes, unlimited capacity, as long as you pay for it. And clouds have as many servers as you're willing to pay for as well, right? So they are those Lego bricks. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's exciting about this new world is using those Lego bricks, you can assemble sophisticated systems. Um, and those would allow you to, like I said, store that data, analyze, process that data, transform this data, and build applications that fundamentally deliver you, you know, beautiful user experience, or they, they give you uh, interesting insights, or they crunch data under the hood, and they present you with some sort of decision support for whatever you want to do with, with that data. They generate insights, they send you notifications on the phone. Everything is, is data-centric. So back to how MemSQL works. MemSQL is that modern data management solution, or a database that lets you store uh, unlimited amount of data and lets you build applications that are data centric. Sometimes they take data and take it, convert it into pixels, right? The pixels that you see on the screens. At times they take the data and then generate insights or reports. And at times that's data that, that powers you AI and machine learning algorithms. That's another use case that we support over and over again. I guess it's a long way to say that data management is an infrastructure layer, right? Just like you, when you walk into a house, there's a, you know, the foundation, there are all the systems that run through the wall, electricity, all those things, all that infrastructure at the end of the day delivers you that experience and deliver that the capabilities of being a product, being an application, being a house. So that's what data management is about. And MemSQL is a modern, rapidly evolving, made in the Silicon Valley data management system. 
It's so fascinating, especially not only what you just shared, Nikita, but that we're looking in the world today of COVID and post-COVID that digital only experiences are continuing to accelerate. And one of those experiences that are accelerating that I call a top 25 trend for Q2 2020 is the growth and acceleration of the cloud. Traditionally, if we look at any of these cloud solutions like the big four, I call them AWS, GCP, Azure, Alibaba Cloud even, um, all these clouds have availability zones, which is where all these data centers are served. And there can even be these edge locations in those regions to help power these systems. But something that you you and I spoke about offline is you've been very successful with building hybrid solutions, basically on-prem and the cloud working together. Um, In MemSQL, you 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 have your own platform that's working with the infrastructure. It's called Helios. Uh, It's very data-centered. So if I was a user who wanted to work today with MemSQL from a high-level view, whether it's with Helios or your other products, what are some ways I should consider solutions on your platform? This is a very uh, good question, right? There's there's the old world of data centers and the uh, servers and the DBAs or DevOps people managing those data centers. And there is a new world, the world of public clouds, where everything seems to be a point and click or an API. Underneath those, of course, there are still data centers and the DevOps people. But to the end user, the consumption model seems to have changed. The interesting thing is that uh, the the data centers, in fact, didn't go away. It's the consumption model that has proven to be very successful in the cloud is now coming back into the data center. So as a prediction, right, we when cloud started and, and started to gain momentum, we started to live in the world of kind of 80-20. 80% of the data uh, uh, infrastructure is in the data center, 20% in the cloud. I think over time this will flip because it just makes way too much sense to consume technology in the public cloud. But just like the, the electricity generators never went away, data center is never going to go away. I think the ratio is going to split. But the consumption model, the consumption model that's proven to be so good in the cloud will be uniform, doesn't matter if you are in the public cloud or you are at the edge. And that consumption model will be the cloud consumption model. And that's how hybrid clouds came to life and came about. They unify the consumption of the technology across public clouds, private clouds, edge, whatever that might be. So there's a bit of a race right now in the market to becoming the number one hybrid cloud provider and uh, all the public clouds participate in the, ra- in the race. So that would be Azure Arc, Google Anthos, and uh, AWS Outpost. Those are the offerings uh, from the public cloud providers. But obviously, the traditional enterprise companies, such as VMware and IBM Red Hat, see this as an opportunity and actually now seems like are in the best position to claim the crowd of the best hybrid cloud provider. So where MemSQL kind of fits into that, right? So now we, we talked about the giants for a little bit. We as an independent provider, we're decisively hybrid and you can consume MemSQL using Helios, which is our managed service by going onto our portal, clicking on the Helios button. And then, you know, a few clicks later, you're able to consume our data management technology in the cloud. But we are also offering Helios hybrid cloud 
which is uh, in a way do-it-yourself cloud, which uh, you can have the same, you can take our software and create the same experience inside your data center, or you can have the same experience by running inside IBM OpenShift, which is, used to be Red Hat OpenShift, but it's now IBM OpenShift, or inside VMware data center technology. And within that, you will have to look at projects uh, Pacific and Project Tanzu. So thinking of all these platforms, it's incredible to see how all these platforms have become these end-to-end solutions. And you're the data management solution that's powering a lot of novel technology solutions that are scaling up today. And of course, this is scaling up in a remote-only world. Of course, society's slowly but surely reopening, but we're looking at a lot of big issues. You know, some of these we've talked about on the show already. Nikita, you mentioned data integrity, data security, and I wanted to know just for our listeners, like what are some of the best tips and practices that they should be thinking about for consumption around data management or any of these uh, techniques as we're still living in this remote world? Well, I think the answer to that is, um, is actually in a lot of details. When we live in the remote world, everything cloud makes things easier. But that's obviously not a, a one-size-fit-all solution. The right choice for your solution really depends on the scenario. And the one thing I can say is think about what the technology gives you today and what the technology is going to give you tomorrow, you know, in the short, medium, and long term. And oftentimes, that is a driver for for many, many enterprise companies who've learned how the world works. And oftentimes, they bet on momentum more than they bet on the, what technology can offer today. So those give you uh, kind of an interesting framework for choosing the solution, right? We live in the world of, you know, I wouldn't say the world of abundance because that sounds really lavish in the COVID world, but we certainly have a ton of choice and doesn't matter what kind of products, what part of the technology, whatever the corner is of this massive digital world. <laughs> uh, like somebody said, Whatever you think the size of the software industry is, you're underestimating, right? It's bigger than you think. So whatever the corner is of the technology, when you need a solution, you will find a lot of choices. And my, my advice would be, you know, understand what you need to solve for today, but also really think what you need to solve for tomorrow and marry that with where the technology is, is moving towards in general and use that as a guiding star for making the choices for data management or really anything else. Tech for good, right? Tech for good is something that talk about so much. And for someone like yourself in the Valley and myself in the Alley, we see all these task forces coming up to see how can we add more abundance? How can we you know, help everyone who needs to be risen up and have a better response to COVID-19. You know, in the past, prior to this, we've had like data science for good initiatives like DataKind. We've had AI for good initiatives like the Brain Bowl from Booz Allen Hamilton and other COVID-19 hackathons like the one that Facebook launched and even hack days we got for high schoolers. But for you and your team, how's MemSQL been giving back or responding to COVID-19? So, What I think the Silicon Valley companies and also individuals who work in the Silicon Valley should do a little bit more of is to volunteer, just like doctors and nurses volunteered and and flew to New York to help with the COVID crisis. 
a lot could be accomplished through technology. And in order to do that, in order to deliver that value, you need technology and you need people, right? And you need people who know how to use that technology. And if I were to make an analogy about World War II and Alan Turing with a team of great scientists thinking about how to crack the Nazi code, you can learn about it by watching this famous movie, The Imitation Game. He was doing as important work with this group of a very talented individual as many who were on the front lines fighting the war. And he was driving that impact through technology. And he was driving this impact through the, the intellect that the, this individual possessed. We actually have a conference room named after Alan Turing. So similarly, right, when we face the crisis of the scale of COVID, there is the frontline workers. We cheer for them every day, right? They're uh, at the front line, saving lives, helping the sick patients, exposing potentially themselves to the virus. But there's plenty of work for information workers, for talented individuals, for data scientists. And a smart politician would call for help to the frontline medical workers, but also call for help to the information workers. And a lot of incredibly talented individuals are there in the Silicon Valley. And I would love to see more volunteering. And I would love also to see more of people recognizing that impact. The other bit is technology. You know, information workers are productive because they leverage, we stand on the shoulders of giants and leveraging technology. And that's where MemSQL has the Data for Good initiative. And for all the COVID-19 government usage, MemSQL is free. So you can use MemSQL and you can use all this incredible technology that we've built over years that is very powerful in the right hands. And uh, you can use it, you can use it for free. And we don't want anything for it. We don't want publicity. We don't want dollars. We just want to contribute to the cause. Again, it's so great to hear that tech startups and tech ventures are saying, let's give you our resources, right? Governments have been trying to see how to scale everything around COVID and systems just seem to keep breaking left and right. But it's that, hey, we are here for you and we want you to get better systems so we can just reopen the economy. You know, again, uh, I'm in New York City, you're in Silicon Valley, but as a thought leader in the Bay, what have you been seeing from the government response opening, whether that's, you know, San Francisco, Berkeley, San Jose, Palo Alto, or even Foster City? Well, we're late to the party. I think what happened in California and specifically in San Francisco, San Francisco was one of the first places to impose a shutdown. And the numbers speak for themselves. So it was done in a timely fashion, and we had one of the fewest cases compared to the rest of the country. The government is also incredibly resistant to the local government to opening up. And if you tune into the voices, the influential voices in the Silicon Valley, which I guess I do by opening up my Twitter feed and uh, where I'm following, you know, major investors, major entrepreneurs that made their name in the Silicon Valley. The overarching statement is, let's do a smart reopening. Let's protect the old, but put the young back to work because we're saving lives in one place and we are losing lives in some others and weak economy and, and unemployment is causing the loss of lives not just as much, but it's causing loss of lives and COVID-19 is causing the loss of lives. And it looks like it's like this impossible dilemma 
but we're doing something that's very crude by you know shutting down the whole the economy rather than being smart about it and uh, doing a smart reopening. I think in the long term we'll be fine either way, but if we do it in a smart way, we could probably at the end of the day save more lives. I think that the human life is priceless, and uh, the loss of revenue is something that you know will never match the cost of a human life. But I think, unfortunately, the sag in the economy causes losses of human lives as well. So that's really what's happening here. Uh, I think they, the lots of voices are asking to open the economy sooner than later, but obviously doing it in a smart way. Yeah, Nikita, I definitely think that we can have a smart reopening and we can start to get positive there. But you're absolutely right that we need to think about how can our reopening be made accessible and equitable for all One of the challenges, at least in New York, that we've seen is that vulnerable populations, such as individuals over the age of 65, those predominantly in nursing homes, and individuals with type 1 or type 2 diabetes have made up almost 50% of the fatalities from COVID-19, these vulnerable populations. And that's perhaps a way that we can look to the numbers to say, That's why what Google and Apple are doing with contact tracing is so important. In your experience, you know, how can we, uh, small tech, startup, scale up, big tech, how can we all work together to collaborate on these initiatives? Well, there's big tech and there's small tech, right? And the big tech, the, the Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook, I think have tremendous amount of power and the tremendous ability to help both with the technology, and there's just the, the vast reach of that technology, and the checkbook. Those are incredibly profitable companies. And as for the small tech, the individuals working for the small tech, in my opinion, should be volunteering more, and that's the way to contribute, and also making their technology free for the right cause. And that's what we're doing with our software. And, you know, as we're looking of not only partnerships there, I think this reminds me of the big phrase that we've seen in COVID-19 that we're all in this together because we are. And the sooner we get to reopening our economies smarter, well, the better we can manage capacities in hospitals and and infrastructure so that we can, you know, get the wheels churning. And there's definitely a lot of learning moments I think we're going to take away similar to the 2008 financial crisis. You know, we look back then, economically speaking, we saw things with culture, society, digital transformations. And I think in the next couple of years, we'll see a lot of that on COVID-19 as well. I'd like us to shift gears in this conversation towards predictions, when and where we're seeing changes, particularly around your areas of expertise, looking at data management, looking at digital transformation, looking at the changes that you think might be permanent or at least a complete shift that we're moving towards as society. What are some of your uh, predictions there, Nikita? Well, I have deep insights about data management and then the recent experience obviously gave me a, a, a bunch of insights about the remote work. But let's just start with that because everybody is going through this. So I think that's here to stay. And like I said earlier, we're it actually worked really well. It worked really well for us as a company and, and with certain individuals at the companies are even asking, like, do we need offices? Like, it looks like it's working fine. Now, I actually want to work from home. Like, it's, uh, it's more comfortable to me. I'm not burning my time on the commute. And like I said, part of the reason it works so well is, well, we got the tools now. 
We got the Zooms, we got the Google Hangouts, we got the Slacks, and so that's there. And the other bit is we're spending that social capital uh, that we've built over the years by people knowing each other and working together in the uh, inside an office, in an office environment. So if we just never go, go back to the office, once the social capital is spent, it's not super clear to me if this is going to continue working just as well as it used to before. So that's why I'm looking forward to reopening. But when I say that that working from home will stay, I think a percentage of time will be spent working from home because every single person was forced to set up some way of being able to work from home. So working from home one day a week, two days a week, there's a lot more comfort to accepting that from the management standpoint. And I think from the individual standpoint as well. So that's that's one. And the data management specifically. I think we're moving from, and that movement has been in every other piece of infrastructure. We're moving from, from hardware and servers to APIs, and data management will be eventually serverless, will be eventually API-based, and will be delivered in the cloud across public and hybrid cloud. So that is my big prediction. But then once you start parsing it, we actually see that happening already for many many analytical workload, and then there's a part of workloads that we call operational that are actually running your business. That's the databases that powering apps. They aren't serverless just yet. They aren't API-based just yet, but we're going to see this unfolding over the next few years. You know, I think everything you've been sharing, Nikita, is absolutely spot on. As someone who's in the education and digital transformation space, also an angel investor, I see a lot of startups and Fortune 500s that we work with. There's been a lot of focus, I think, from trends as well on the healthcare sector, on the consumer sector, like direct-to-consumer, and even the education sector, as well as work-from-home products. I think we're seeing a lot of growth in these industries, but you know, myself, just like you, we have a lot of friends and colleagues who are startup founders and in the industry who are going through challenging conversations right now. As you're a founder who's been scaling MemSQL for nine years, I mean, what are some of your thoughts on how startups can be successful during and after COVID-19? Well, as a startup, you either impacted dearly you know, if you are in the travel industry or you're in the hotel industry, you're in one of those that um, that probably it feels like you've been hit by a bus during those times. And I have a friend uh, at um, at a major enterprise travel startup, and their uh, revenues are down 99%. So survival is kind of the first thing that comes to mind. And the other one, uh, but the other thing is, it's a defining mo- moment for startups. That's where, where the borders are redrawn, right? And those who emerge out of this, the strongest, will benefit for years and years after a stress test like COVID is bringing to the industry. That's the lens that we view our market, right? You know, what are the investments? What are the opportunities that are here in front of us? What is this amazing talent that we can grab now that some of the major companies ran big layoffs. So there's certainly a lot more fantastic people on the market that we can hire that bring those opportunities together. And because startups are nimble by nature and the decision makers are few, that let 
startups actually seize those opportunities. And, um, you know, as a founder, I like to be optimistic. And certainly we've been working like this is the COVID quarter. We worked very, very hard. We've been fortunate through the quarter. We accomplished a lot. And uh, we're looking forward to the next one to walk in and have, you know, plenty of caution and a healthy dose of optimism. Taking everything together, uh, Nikita, from that you're doing at MemSQL around data management and what we're hearing around COVID-19 with startups, it is the COVID quarter, and this is a result of the market conditions. What call to action or message would you like to share with our listeners today on the Humane Podcast? So I want to repeat myself about the planning caution and the healthy dose of optimism. I think that's important. I think the other bit is, well, the COVID quarter will pass, right? The next quarter was going to be half COVID, and then the quarter after is going to be quarter COVID. And after that, there's probably going to be no COVID, and the life is going to come back to it. I look at this as a stress test. I know that stress tests are a good if you survive them, and you emerge stronger after it. That's really the focus for us, and that's that what I wish the rest of the tech industry was going through as well. Well, Nikita Shamganov is the founder and co-CEO of MemSQL. Thank you so much for joining us on the Humane Podcast. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.